five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was the Simple Minds. I travel. Oh, look where I am now. I'm at the uh, Great Aquarium in Okinawa. Look at that. Hey, it's Pisces season. Let's invoke the uh, the spirit of the great fish. Uh, yeah, Simple Minds. They were pretty badass at that time. They're an interesting group. They, they have like two careers. They have that early career where they're just banging out this very uh, kind of quasi-industrial, electronic, uh, dance, funk stuff. And some, some of it is pretty dark. Like they have some very dark songs during that period. And then they, of course, there's the don't you forget about me period and sanctify yourself where they get smitten by the uh, urge to be successful in mainstream, which really most artists should have to deal with that at some point, theoretically. And I like that version of Simple Minds too for different reasons. <clears throat> but that version of Simple Minds to me is my favorite version of Simple Minds because I was listening to them uh, during that time. I was around 19, 20 years old, and you know, I was listening to their music, and nobody was really into, nobody really even knew who they were, um, let alone listen to their music. And when I bought uh, Sons and Fa Sons of Fascination, and uh, uh, was it uh, Hearing Sister Call? Like, man, that shit blew my mind. It really blew my mind. And even some of their um, other stuff like 30 frames a second life in a day really cool tunes not as aggressive um as that song but they have some other songs like that that are aggressive um they have a song called america seems like a lot of bands during that time were, were kind of looking at america uh and not feeling real good about America. I almost played it. It's a great song, but um, I played that instead. And of course, love song, which I think I've played here on this show before, like maybe last year. So I didn't really want to replay that tune, but it's a pretty rare uh, video of them doing that. And I think that was probably part of some show. And then they, they played it live, but that's the studio track. I mean, note for note. But really interesting music and way ahead of their time. 
when you know i was i was thinking as i was going through their catalog yesterday and watching some of these old videos i thought to myself what was david bowie thinking about when he saw this or heard this music because you know bowie was very trend conscious let's put it that way he was always going like this and seeing where the winds were blowing musically and that was around uh, 1980, so that puts him in the uh, ashes to ashes period. This is just prior to his rebirth as a as a pop icon with Let's Dance. What's interesting about that tune we just heard is that there's a kind of a funk guitar break in there that is very reminiscent of Nile Rodgers who David Bowie would employ to produce Let's Let's Dance and essentially remake him into a a pop icon again because he he had made some great records uh, in uh, in Germany and in Poland but they were not mainstream successes and I think he wanted to taste the mainstream again of course Bowie's a Capricorn he wants that Jim Kerr the singer of the Simple Minds I believe is a Cancer if I'm not mistaken. So they're opposite. But if I was Bowie during 1980 and I'm listening to them, I'm going, holy shit. Dude, there's always those moments like when you had all these uh, 60s rockers and they show up to uh, listen to the Stones play in Hyde Park and King Crimson opens for them. And King Crimson's just on, on another level than everybody else at that time. And they're looking around going, holy shit. Like, where did these guys come from? They're, they're redefining what we're doing musically. And I'm okay with King Crimson. I'm not a huge King Crimson fan. There are some songs I really like. But that must have been that kind of a moment. Like, oh, man. It's kind of like how Eric Clapton felt when he saw Jimi Hendrix. Like, a lot of those dudes, even Jeff Beck, who was the... Uh, the ace guitar player in England at that time, when he saw Hendrix, he was like, man, I got to step up my game. This guy's really good. You know, I could just imagine uh, Bowie kind of catching wind of the like, heaven 17 and simple minds and the human league and all these groups that are doing this, you know, quasi electronic uh, music. <clears throat> probably like, man, I got to step up my game a little bit here. And, and I did see the Simple Minds once. I was in um, California a long time ago. Yeah, I think it was the New Gold Dream Tour or Sparkle in the Rain. I forget which one. I was really looking forward to it, right? Because, like, you know, even the later stuff has a kind of quasi-religious feel to it. So I'm like, man, this is going to be a really high-vibe concert. It was okay. It was, it was okay. I have to say Jim Kerr bugged me a little bit. He's the singer. I hate to admit it, but he kind of bugged me a little bit. Uh, but I'm glad I saw them because, well, probably never going to see him again, just like a lot of these other bands. Anyway, welcome to the show. We finished up um, a little longer version of Astro Weather today. Um, I kind of got into Pisces, inspired by the Piscean energy, the Piscean vibe. We got the newsletter going out today. So if you're um, a subscriber and a member, you'll get the newsletter. That's all I'll be showing up today. And some good Piscean information, some some of which I've talked about already. So um, look for your uh, newsletter in the inbox. 
And if you don't find it in the inbox, uh, please check the, uh, the spam uh, because sometimes this is how it gets sorted out. So uh, check your spam and inbox over the next 24 hours. We send them out in batches because it seems like the batch sends are, are uh, less likely to be shuttled off into uh, spam, spam folders. So just uh, keep checking on that. All right. Um, we have a lot to talk about today. We got a little uh, peachy update. So yesterday, uh, so I started to leave her dish outside of her room to feed her, right? So she could come out of her room. So I started doing that. And then I just opened the door. And I think it was, um, I was doing a reading or I was just finishing up yesterday. And she comes into my office, which is on the second floor upstairs. Here, oh, look who's here! And then uh, later, the door opens. Still, I guess in the night, I'm hanging out with Jasper. I'm in the kitchen, and um, I'm making some food. And who do I see? <laughs> A little peachy, walking around the floor. Jasper's up on the countertop, just kind of looking down on her like a god. Who is this? Who is this in my kitchen? And then she's like oblivious. She looks up, she sees him, she runs upstairs. <laughs> so we have some integration uh, still to work on, but at least she's exploring and, and uh, walking around the house, which I think is a, is a good thing. She might've spent the night under my bed last night. So we're trying our best to uh, integrate her into the household here. Um, let's talk uh, True Ham Science. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you hear, you're here and you are here on a regular basis, you know what I'm talking about. If you're new, uh, welcome if you're new. And if you're listening on the podcast side of things or on Rumble, we're starting to get a little bit of an audience on Rumble. I'm averaging about uh, 250 views. So if you're watching live on Rumble or you're watching uh, the replay on Rumble, uh, thanks for doing that, and welcome. It's starting to pick up a little bit of traction. I'm starting to get some comments that are left, which is always good. Even if they're bad comments, comments are good. They populate. They populate the field, and the algorithm picks it up. It's like, oh, there's interest in this. Now, Rumble has uh, Rumble doesn't necessarily recommend things like YouTube does, does it? So I'm not sure how the algorithm works on Rumble, but uh, we're getting some traction over there, which is really great. So if you're over there or you're listening on the uh, podcast side of things, Trium Science is our partner and our sponsor. Uh, let's see. We got, I got to do this thing now. Chris had his website hacked. So he's had to put these safeguards in. And you're seeing my birthday there. I guess I could use anything, but all right. So there we go. There's the ASMR version of his website. And again, I'll just repeat what I shared over on Astral Weather. I had a conversation, text conversation with a listener, follower, friend going through a very, very hard time, as many of us are. And she had to go to sleep. After, you know, a long bout of crying her eyes out because she found out something about somebody that 
completely uh, altered and changed her perception of that person. So she reached for the gummies. They work. They absolutely work. And um, again, I said this on the uh, Astro Weather. I had a conversation with another client. And she told me, I start my day off with the moon dust. Um, I hit a little of the 19 as I move into my day. And uh, by the time nighttime rolls around, I'm into sleep gummy world. There you go. And there are varying degrees of CBD. And uh, some of some of Chris's CBDs are very herbaceous. And some, some people like the herbaceous quality to it. Joan loves the herbaceous quality. She, she likes to feel that taste that kind of pungent leafy sort of um, resiny quality of the CBD. I'm a little less inclined uh, to, uh, to do that. And one thing I'll say about, about uh, Chris's products, I don't think I've ever shared this, but there was a period where he would always send me stuff. He sent me a few things and I would, I knew it was effective but I couldn't stand the fucking taste of it. I'm just being honest here. And he's really changed the, the palate of the CBD. In fact, the 19 is, you know, you can taste, I'll even have some right now. You can taste some of the, the resiny CBD quality. It's powerful. But it takes you right to that edge, right? Right to the edge of that herbaceous, resiny um, potency that CBD has within it. So he's really played with a lot of the the, the uh, kind of the, the flavoring or the, the feel in the mouth. So anyway, if you want to get some of his products, uh, spend $100 and type in uh, 15MINS. That's one five MINS when you check out, you'll get some free stuff. That's what happened with my client yesterday. She got free stuff. She started buying some of the free stuff. This is how it works, right? But you won't know until you get it. You spend a hundred dollars, type that in, you'll get it. $150 and more gets you free shipping. So there you go. Trimscience.com. All right, let's get into Chataria. Let's see who we have here today. Who came to play today? Man, I love that tune. I used to play that in my car. Driving around with that in my car. That was some gas. There he is, DJMC. What's going on, brother? Mike, brother Tom is here as well. Sanhedrin can't have the truth, can we? Turn them over to the Romans, absolutely. Sacrificial China says, ready to join forces with Russia to defend national interests as Putin confirms Xi visit. Now we're starting to uh, do the slow march into prophecy, aren't we? Now we're in Edgar Casey territory. Uh, user 13 checking in sp dimples hello sp good to see you there's worse people to be stuck with <laughs> that's good hucklebuck 411 what's going on brother huck 
Uh, Double B, Beth Berry's here. Kelly B, we got the Bs too early. Oh, you got here. The music was playing. Uh, Sony, hi, Sony. Good to see you. There she is, fantastic. CC Jones. Darlene, hi, Darlene. Checking in from the 210. I'll be listening while working. Good. Chris and Steve. What's going on? What's going on, kids? Barbara did a nice analysis on his weather show. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Lisa W. Checking in. Good morning to you. Harriet Bowie. Beaming in from Astro Weather to 15 minutes. Teleporting between interzones. Uh, let's see. Jesse Jackson, Ron Brown, and Ted Kennedy. That's quite a crowd to hang out with. Oh, boy. Uh, Lynn. Checks in. Uh, hi there, chatters. Fire here, too. City Mall burned to the ground last night in David, half hour from here. So Lynn is uh, reporting from Panama. Look at Gigi. She's listening on a walk run. Good for you. Getting your aerobic on. Way to go, Gigi. Sim saw Simple Minds open for the Pretenders uh, at um, on LI at Jones Beach. Chrissy, Chrissy Hind, Virgo. Chrissy Hind and Jim Kerr got married, didn't they? I wonder if that tour had something to do with it. First it was Ray Davies, and it was then it was uh, Jim Kerr. Who else do we have? Catherine. Uh, well, you're uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Appreciate you being here, Catherine. Um, Captain Tom never missed an opportunity. <laughs> oh man, that is so funny. That is so funny. Uh, that's a little Frank Zappa. Little Frank Zappa quote there. Nice reference, one AI. Uh, let's see who else do we have. Yeah, so yeah, we're mining. We're mining that late seventies, early eighties, uh, semi-industrial techno-electronic sound of uh, Sheffield, and in this case, I think uh, the Simple Minds from Glasgow, aren't they? Pretty sure they're from Glasgow, although they might be from Edinburgh. I have to go back and check my Simple Minds notes. But that whole era is really fascinating. And you have somebody like Gary Newman. And Gary Newman is really sort of the, the mutant offspring of David Bowie, isn't he? Gary Newman's a, a Pisces. I saw Gary Newman one time live. He kind of moved into this really guitar-heavy sound. It was actually pretty good. Um, Hyde Park at Primo Concerts. Yeah, back in the day, they did. Absolutely. Crossfire Cat is here. Sad how Robert Fripp, with his huge intellect, is a complete vac shill. A lot of those Pluto and Leo boomers just punched that ticket, man. Robert Fripp's kind of a weirdo. I think I'm being slightly understated with that. Nobody can deny his talent. 
Uh, let's see what's going on. Lyle Coyotel checking in from uh, SoCal. Bowie feared Gary Newman the most. I just said that. Absolutely. Gary Newman literally was he, Gary Newman was like the alien that broke out of John Hurt's chest to, to David Bowie. That's who, that's who Gary Newman was. Absolutely. Closing the main highway is more the MO of these people. They just extended the gas subsidy until April 1st. These people are getting restless. Hey, Jeff Rosansky's over here. What's going on, brother Jeff? Good to see you. Um, does this PV sacrifice of O'Keefe Show a big leanness. I think O'Keefe is a he's a cancer. I'd have to look at his chart. You know, we got Pluto uh, at uh, 29 Capricorn. And I talked about how as we move into Pluto and Aquarius, that the uh, the previous age itself might must be sacrificed in order for the uh, our architectonics or the art. Our context, the our context to create their new world. Maybe he's part of it. Fake styrofoam snow in North New Mexico. So you guys have that nucleated snow. Third eye activated here with us. Cool. Good to see you. You love that you love her name, Peachy. She's a little peachy girl. Start off with peaches. And I just decided to go peachy. You know, the evolution of names starts like that. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Give me a second here. I got to plug in my power. SJS, hope your day is peachy. <laughs> you know, you ever, so if anybody ever asks you in, in, the, in the grocery store line, how are you today? I will often reply with either peachy or swell. That will get their attention. Oh, I like that. I like that. Uh, anyone here friends with Queen Lisa knows she's doing okay. Um, it's been about a week since I talked with Lisa and there's a lot going on in her life and I think I'll get an update here fairly soon. And a lot of it's quite inspirational how the town has really stepped up and um, helped out with her. You know, this is what people theoretically should do, right? This is what we're supposed to do. And she's experiencing it, which is really good. Uh, let's see. Hind was at the Kent State shootings along with members of Devo. Oh, I didn't know that, but she is from Ohio, isn't she? That was an in, that was an interesting period. You had Devo, the Dead Boys. I think there was a band called the Rubber City Rebels. And isn't Per Ubu from Ohio? That was a really interesting time for music from Ohio. Steve is here. What's going on, brother Steve? Gummy life. I like that. 
Uh, let's see. I'm a Jove member now. Yes. I, I think, I think I got you on the list there, Jeff. Pretty sure if you don't get the newsletter, let me know. Jacqueline. Can't chat. We love you back, Jackie. Sony. Let's see what else do we have. Uh, mm, 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 Rocky's here. Capria. Hi, Capria. Made it for the live. Welcome. Christine. What's going on, Black Pill Mama? And Teresa popping in to say hi. Chrissy Hines mentioned and the thought of the Pretender song, Ohio. Yeah, there she goes. I actually listened to Chrissy Hines the other day. Those first two Pretender albums uh, kick fucking ass. And then all the guys started to die. <laughs> it's like, no more band. Yeah, one guy left. It's not really the Pretenders. It's more like Chrissy Hines. Okay, so we're all here. Present Counter for welcome. We have a lot to cover today. A lot to cover. Um, where do I start? Why don't we start with the whole James O'Keefe thing? I don't know if you guys have seen, you know, I was planning on going in a different direction because I had kind of a long form topic that we could mine for a couple of days. But uh, this thing is really uh, fascinating. Now, this is a nine minute and 10 second. Well, I guess it's a report. Let me see. Um, Daily Caller. Um, I wanted to see the long version so we could just zoom in on it a little bit. This is the one. This is Tim Pool. It's already got uh, 294,000 views. Some of you may have seen this already. And I think it gives us a lot of uh, insight into the the process that he's going through. And uh, a little bit of inside baseball. So if you haven't seen this, I'm going to play a little bit of it so that you can get a sense as to uh, how this thing is uh, unfolding. And again, with this idea that the, that the background narrative is, is the sacrifice and Pisces is the season of sacrifice. Uh, it's interesting that his first video where he exposed corruption was acorn basically destroyed acorn and the whole idea notion that the acorn is a seed as well and that video was literally him planting the seed for veritas which would grow into this nonprofit it's a nonprofit there's a board of course you have to have a board on a nonprofit or a for-profit. It doesn't matter. But it grew into this uh, mighty oak that stood strongly for the principles of the theoretical truth. Now, did uh, James O'Keefe go after the most sacred of the sacred cows? 
My answer to that would be no. Because he'd probably lose some donorships. And I'm not going to necessarily address that. Did he go after uh, people and situations, um, topics, um, problems that are essential and important and to bring light to those things? Absolutely. 100%. Shining a light on... <clears throat> corruption and, and really injustice. And one of my favorite Project Veritas is when it was when this is not that long ago when he was dealing with the guy who was um, a teacher in the Sacramento area and an avowed Maoist and a communist. Right? I mean, that's I mean he was indoctrinating the kids into the classroom into the school district in Sacramento and they figured it out. Right. And the guy lost his gig. Now that might just be, uh, you know, catching one mosquito in a massive swarm. And it has the, maybe the potential of people thinking, Oh yeah, well we got one, right. We got one you know, kind of a, kind of a temporary pelt in a lot of ways, but there's more to it than that, right? It's bringing awareness, which is an important thing. A lot of people just, it always amazes me how few people are aware of what's going on. And so when you have something like that go viral, it's not just taking out this one person who's clearly, you know, and again, we can have a discussion about whether you should have your kids in school or not. I don't think you should because this whole thing is so systemic now that if you get through one grade, you may not get through the next grade without your kid running into the ideological, um, in, you know, invisible electric fence and getting zapped on that. So that's a whole other discussion, but at the very least it shines a light as to what's going on in the schools. So, there's a purpose to it, and I think the purpose is valid. So let's play this a little bit, and um, let's hear from the man himself. And I'm going to skip around. This is from Tim Poole. Put this up. Thank you all for being here on a President's Day, but I think it's fitting that, you know, we're here on President's Day. <laughs> um, so um, I, I wrote these so I could get the words right, you know, but it's obviously from the heart. And, and I wanted to do this in person with you all, not over a Zoom or Teams. And, you know, he's going to film it. And, and this is, these are intended just for the family here at Project Veritas. You know, this is just for us. I, I recognize that when you send something out to 60 people, but I'm, I'm not going to do that today. I'm, so, you know, so I just wanted to tell you the truth. So, so I'm going to read this and I'm going to try my best to, you know, speak from the heart, but I did write these words and I want to tell you what's going on. So here we go. Uh, it's going to take me about 15 minutes to do this. Uh, journalism is reporting things powerful people want kept hidden for the wrong reasons, moral wrongs, bad behaviors, as journalists were the custodians of the public's conscience. And as we've gone deeper and deeper exposing and illuminating corruption, the lies hidden from public view, 
the line that separates good and evil becomes more clear. Not just in the institutions we investigate, but within one another. Throughout my 13 years doing this, our mission has evolved from simply being about exposing the truth with some hidden cameras to something more transcendental, giving people hope, right? That's what we do. And I'm going to stand here because I just feel like I'm filming a video for the audience. Um, and as we ascended into that higher purpose, which I think we all understand that we have, um, we have suffered through triumph and disaster along the way in a similar fashion to what I wrote about in my book. You know, the first chapter was called Suffering. So the line that separates good and evil passes not through the states, nor classes, nor political parties, but right through every single human heart, to quote Solzhenitsyn. So that line in the sand becomes more clear the deeper we go in investigating these powerful institutions. So over the last, uh, over the last few weeks, um, I have felt a lot of despair and uh, a lot of e seen a lot of evil and felt overcome with various emotions over the last few weeks. You could say I've seen glimpses of heaven and hell, of darkness and light. But I take that's so Piscean, by the way. You know the 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 uh, radical dualism of of these these uh, polarized positions, right? And so he's he's having this Piscean commentary about uh, good and evil and heaven and hell, uh, which is really embedded, you know, in the this idea of these fishes that are swimming in, you know, um, opposite directions in a lot of ways. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that. I may do this a little bit along the way, but I'm gonna try to give him the space here so you can see what he's talking or hear what he's talking about because it's a very interesting piece. Take away from these is the gratitude that I have um, for many of you, for most of you. And there is such goodness in so many of you that I have seen and I'm grateful for that. And the generosity and goodwill we have steadily built over the past 13 years with so many people. I've received thousands of text messages and phone calls from people all over the world concerned about my well-being. But as I was going through this process, I reflected upon my appreciation for many of you. What makes us great is that we do this work because we actually believe in it, right? We actually believe in this. It shocks people that we do. And we have a passion for it and we have principle. Like I know, you know, we don't sell out. I think that's fair, at least most of us. Um, we have a passion for doing the right thing in a visual way, no matter what, that's what binds us. I know many of you have experienced this despair alongside of me um, in the last couple weeks. One of you just told me the other day that you'd go work at Walmart at the night shift so that you could do this during the day. That's what one of you said to me. I, I believe you rather than sell out. In fact, I know this is true for many of you and many more out there who wish to be part of this. It's true. I remember back in the beginning, 13 years ago, when I had like no money, I would have to use bubble gum duct tape. I think you were around during that time. I keep looking at you because I've known you since Andrew Breitbart. And my grandmother's chinchilla, I literally had to place a Project Veritas sticker on a piece of cardboard that I ripped off from my dad's cardboard and stick it to a microphone at Radio Shack because I had no money to buy a flag mic. And this was after experiencing a meteoric high of the acorn story. I was up and I was down um, and I was broke again and I was arrested 
and then crashed down to a meteoric low, back in the carriage house, resorting once again to bubblegum and duct tape to achieve the NPR investigation that took us yet again to a meteoric high. I was so broke that I had to scribble my name and phone numbers on pieces of paper because I had no business cards. And so the saga continues. Back then, there were no employees and no budget. Um, but I felt the same sensation this week. I feel the sensation right now. As Steve Jobs once wrote about being fired from Apple, the company he founded, quote, the heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again. Less sure about everything. It freed me to enter one of the most creative periods of my life. So back then I trudged on from the back of a stretch limo in D.C. Two guys, I was on federal probation so I couldn't be there, but two of my volunteers dressed like Muslim Brotherhood fundamentalists armed with hidden cameras, Project Veritas was born again in 2011 for a second time. A couple of donors eventually became 100,000 donors present day, 13 years later. After almost a decade and a half of 85-hour work weeks, sometimes traveling 300 days a year, I am on the road packing multiple meetings in a day and plenty of blood, sweat, and tears, the likes of which I could never have possibly fathomed. The external threats and pressure inflicted against myself and some of us has been unimaginable. I'm going to summarize them. Handcuffed by the FBI on two separate occasions, 12 years apart, having my phones confiscated and private information leaked to the New York Times, being placed on effective house arrest for three years between May of 2010 and May of 2013, being sued dozens of times, being served two separate criminal grand jury subpoenas in New Hampshire in the last 10 years, getting pursued in a high-speed chase by a New Jersey education union official on Interstate 80 in Passaic, deposed many times, suffered through mediation with insurance companies where they had all of our emails and everything, but they evidently didn't have anything on me. Getting my home raided by the FBI, having my loved ones put in handcuffs in the hallway, and having our office destroyed by a hurricane, literally a hurricane, which forced us into a temporary workplace before rebuilding and stirred up disgruntled employees, including grievances about me, which I will get to in a minute. The list goes on. Even so, as a former board member told me 10 years ago, Project Veritas will never be stopped from the outside. It will only be because we stopped ourselves, right? I'll get to that too in a minute. Prophetic as it may be, that is exactly where we find ourselves in the situation today. A situation where I have been stripped of my authority as CEO and removed from the board of directors. I bet you didn't know that. I'll get to that in a minute. Contrary to what public statements may say. And by the way, I have copies for this. I will not give them to you yet. I will give them to you after I'm done. And there are board minute meetings, which you'll all get a copy of, that read as follows. Quote, James O'Keefe indefinitely suspended as CEO without compensation. February 10th. Yes. Quote, indefinite suspension of James O'Keefe from the board. Dated February 10th, five days before the statement, saying that I'm still the CEO. I don't know why this is happening now or specifically why this is happening suddenly, right now. As you know, at the helm of Veritas, I've never allowed or entertained speculation. 
I only report the facts. I think you know this. You're, work, you're involved in hiring. <laughs> but don't you know that so many people want to go beyond the facts? I'm adamant that I'm only going to stick to the facts. So much so that sometimes we don't hire people if they want to pontificate and opine about what's going on in society. And I've had people leave because they don't agree with this vision, okay, of what a journalist ought to do. But fortunately, I have recordings and documents to back up everything I'm about to tell you. So everything I'm about to tell you, I have documentation and proof. So you don't have to say I wasn't there. You can listen to it and watch it for yourself. So, I'm about a quarter of the way through here. Bear with me. For the last 13 years, I've been the same person I've always been, probably better than I used to be. Uh, these are adjectives some people used. Uh, tough, uh, hard-charging, uh, driven, creative, exacting. I have extremely high standards and somewhat disorganized. I don't ask you how your Thanksgiving was, okay? Or the names of your siblings, although a good leader probably should. I don't do that. I ask a lot of you, a lot of you, but I don't ever ask you to do anything I haven't myself done and continue to do. I haven't always been the most compassionate leader, um, and that is admittedly a fault of mine. Something I need to work on. But I remember when I was back in the carriage house in the beginning, there was a journalist in the beginning, and he pointed this out to me. So you, know, you need to be more compassionate. Talk, ask me about my life. And it hurt him that I wasn't more compassionate towards him. Personally, I told him it was difficult for me to change myself. But this experience stayed with me, and I always have known this about myself. I've tried to do a better job of that, but the truth is I've been very hurried, hurried, very busy, pressed for time every day, trying to pack in so much in a day. I think you all know this in meetings. I'm busy because I'm trying to get so much done in an hour, all the while moving at the speed of light to raise as much money to hire more people to take care of you guys in a fundamental way, although I may not be good at communicating the reasons why I am that way. I'm doing as much as I humanly possibly can so I could build this place out and do more. And that's what we did every year, each year since 2010. Growing every year, sometimes doubling our revenue, doubling our impact. I have a chart here, which again, I'm gonna hand to you, um, uh, the chart of the growth every year. I have never slowed down. I recognize that perhaps I should, but number one, there is a trade-off to slowing down. And number two, um, I need the right leaders around me in order to do that. So along the way, there has been much turnover, replacing people with better people. This was painful to me and to many of you who witnessed it. But that has always been happening since day one. There was turnover 10 years ago when I had to fire a friend from college. Let's just uh, maybe hold off on that until the end. So I'll make sure that everyone has a copy of this. And I don't intend to publish this. This is for you guys internally. Um, I had, Ten years ago, I had to fire a friend from Rutgers. That hurt me. It took me months to get over this. I never discussed this. I felt for him, but it was the conflict that ate at me, but I had to do it. See, leadership has a price, and results often come at a human cost. Maybe fewer in this world, present day, are willing to pay that price. Many people want the fruits of leadership, such as its power, results, 
Twitter followings, secondary effects, but the price of the responsibilities, burdens, trials, hardships, difficult decisions, or just sheer suffering, I don't think people want that. And all through the years, things fundamentally continued on an upward trajectory for this place, albeit turnover. And I'm a hard guy to work for sometimes. We file our annual tax return. A public tax return is required by the IRS. And my compensation is set by an independent board of directors via a compensation committee. Um, four times a year, our chief financial officer has submitted company financials to the board. That's every quarter. And our board approves it in quarterly meetings. All three members of the C3 were present. And we have subjected both the C3 and the C4 to audits from outside independent accounting agencies each and every year. That happens. That has always been happening. Nothing about how I've conducted myself over the past 13 years has really fundamentally changed until now. So what has changed in the last three weeks? What has changed? The only thing that has changed is that we broke the biggest story in our organization's history. You know that one I'm talking about? Pfizer. The, week, the last week of January. With 50 million views. That like broke the record by like 10x. Our video became a global phenomenon. It was about Pfizer and one of the directors discussing mutating the virus. Our confrontation video where he locked me in a pizza restaurant with you and you and he smashed the equipment and called the police. Um, that became a phenomenon and was riveting television for our audiences glued to their screens. That was my, probably my, one of my favorite things that ever happened. It was just really <laughs> unbelievable. To, it was like true, true to be false and seemingly too false to be true, but it was real. <laughs> if, if someone else is here, you can let them in. Hello, come on in. Just giving a few remarks to the team here, so you came at the right moment. So the only thing that changed were these videos, outlets in India and trying to cover the story, and our social media exploded like never before. Our employees and board members' Twitter accounts also exploded like never before. Pfizer even put out a non-denial denial, like you always capture these things, where they basically admitted they were mutating the virus, albeit they buried this admission in jargon. But it was still an admission. And it was extraordinary that Pfizer responded to us with an admission, not denying that this guy was who he was. What an amazing turn of events. That is the only thing that's changed in 13 years of me being who I am. And then suddenly, an unusual emergency happened just a few days after that. I think we have one more person here, if we could let him in. So suddenly, an unusual, and I'm going to take you through this. I'm going to take you through what happened. Some of you don't know these things. Hello. We're talking about the story we broke. An unusual emergency happened. On Thursday, February 2nd, that's a few days after the Pfizer story, I was informed by an officer of Project Veritas on the phone while en route to the airport that he would resign unless I stepped down as CEO. We've been having a conflict of visions, him and I, over fundraising. Are we in fundraising here? I guess no one from fundraising is here. I don't know. 
There were tactical disagreements about the boldness of approaches soliciting donations. I was told, and I'm paraphrasing, by asking for X dollars right now, you will prevent 10X dollars down the road. That advice ran contrary to everything I knew to be true in my 13 years of fundraising. Um, but that conflict was even more fundamental and essentially boiled down to this. And my vision, I'm going to paraphrase Howard Rourke, the architect, quote, I don't have, I don't build in order to have donors. I have donors in order to build. That's what I believed. And I felt like we had a conflict of visions. We don't measure our success only in terms of how much money we bring in. We measure our success in terms of our impact. Remember Acorn? I don't think I raised a single dollar off that. I had a stack of media coverage to the ceiling. We measure our success in terms of what we produce, not just in terms of our wallets. That was a pretty fundamental conflict, I felt. The day prior, I had informed him in front of his colleagues that he, if he wasn't willing to follow my lead, he'd be shown the door. I tried to deal with it privately, but I was unsuccessful, and the disagreement boiled over publicly in a staff meeting. The next day, this individual refused to resign, so I fired him. Later that same day, that's Feb Thursday, February 2nd, a few days after the 50 million viewed Pfizer videos, I was informed by a different officer of Project Veritas that he would go to the board in a few hours from that moment and have an emergency vote to restructure this company. Receiving an agenda in my email while I was sitting on an airplane tarmac with the doors closing. Okay, this is a really intense piece of this story. This guy is James O'Keefe is getting ready to find out that his company that he built, this, this organization is about to be taken away from him as he's on a plane, the doors are closing and the, the, the uh, flight attendant is telling him to get off his phone. That's hell. That's absolute hell. I'm gonna so just keep that in mind, and um, I'm gonna circle back. I'll bring some astrology into this because some people are asking about it. So let's keep going. The the meeting was scheduled for the moment that my plane landed in Nashville. It became clear to me in that moment, I would be removed from my position at Project Veritas by the time I landed at my destination. I bet you didn't know that. I have a copy of the, the emergency meeting here for you guys to take a look at. It's, it's in writing. You could read it. You don't have to be there. You can read the minutes. They're official board minutes. They're written by a lawyer. My first question on the phone to this guy, my colleague, as I was staring at this agenda when the stewardess was asking me to get off the phone, was, quote, what are we going to tell our supporters if I'm removed from my position? I think that's the first question. I, mean, I had a hundred questions, but that was the first one. My colleague, who is an officer of Project Veritas, responded by saying our supporters wouldn't have to find out. Mm. Sounds like something you would get in the Claire McCaskill campaign. <laughs> it sounds like something you'd, it sounds like something you would expose. I was so shocked by this. And again, the stewardess was asking me to get off the phone. I was in, I, I guess you could say that I was in a state of complete shock. Wow. How would our supporters not be informed of such an enormous thing? It was a lapse in judgment so severe that it was itself a fireable offense to make a statement like that. It was a lapse in judgment so severe 
it was, it was impossible to hide my removal from my position at Veritas to anybody. As the CEO and chief fundraiser, I have to explain the context of my role to thousands of people, 300 days a year on the road, while soliciting them for funds so that I can pay you. And I knew many of our supporters and donors would not like that change. If I was removed from the chief decision maker at the organization I founded, I share who we are, our vision, our structure, our strategy with everybody. In fact, hiding something so fundamental from people is something that we stand against in principle, particularly with the amount of scrutiny that we're under. The doors closed, the plane took off, but somehow over the next few hours, I was able to convince the board to push this emergency meeting to that Monday, February the 6th. The very next day, and this is where things get really bizarre, so fasten your seatbelts. The very next day, on Friday, this is now Friday, February 3rd, a board member reached out to one of our journalists and stated, quote, you get a raise if there is a restructure without James O'Keefe at Project Veritas. I have a copy of the text message, and I'll give it to all of you. I redacted the name of the journalist. The board member deleted the message, but not before our journalist took screenshots. Good job, journalist. Yeah. <laughs> On Sunday, February 5th, now that's Sunday, two days after the Friday, a board member requested my presence at his home. He informed me, quote, you had nothing to do, James, with this Pfizer story, unquote. Perplexed by this, I took out my iPad and showed him a video of myself confronting the Pfizer executive, which had 11 million views on YouTube. He responded, quote, but that was after the undercover video had already been done, unquote. I pointed out that the brave journalist, and many of you know who this person is, I'm not going to name anyone, who recorded the interaction was someone that I had to sit down over a year prior, remember, over dinner, for hours, talking off the proverbial ledge, insisting he take the long, arduous road to get the story about Pfizer, and indeed he did. The board member responding to me saying that said he did not know that and admitted that another board member was persuading him to the contrary. In the meeting, that's now the, we're fast forwarding to Monday two weeks ago, on the 6th, I offered an apology letter to the board for my tone of voice in the office at the leadership meeting the week before, that I intended to also share that apology for my tone of voice with our staff. But the board refused to accept my apology, nor believe that it was sincere. They also did not support my sending it to the staff. I imagine many of you didn't even know that I drafted an apology. Then I was subject to a six and a half hour listing of grievances, which included taking black cars to meetings. I don't know the significance of the color of the vehicle. And taking a few charter jets over the years to pack multiple PV meetings in a day. One of those jets, I think we had a meeting in New York, Wisconsin, and California in the same day, and it, and it raised $2 million. But the revenue part was omitted. There was also some truly bizarre grievances, including my failure to record audio in one encounter at a bar in upstate New York, and an allegation that I 
stole a pregnant woman's sandwich in federal court. There were also discussions from a few staffers with donors in the boardroom. Donors were listening to some of this, and some of these were sent directly to donors without my consent. Donors who have no knowledge of my personal life and have no business asking questions about my personal life about girls I've dated in the past. A fundraising colleague relayed, and again, this is going to start getting really strange, but I'm this, this board meeting was video recorded. We'll get to that in a minute. A fundraising staffer relayed, quote, concerns about my behaviors regarding videos where I, quote, literally chased a Twitter executive around New York. By acclamation from all of you in 2022, that video about the Twitter chase was one of the most successful videos. But yet, your colleagues in a boardroom we're expressing concerns about it. Every board member previously communicated their love of that video, but none pushed back in that moment when the staffer criticized it. Why? The attacks were so severe against me personally in that boardroom, and again, this is all video recorded, and I suggest that you ask for that. I will not provide that to you. This, it, the attacks were so severe that one board member asked, quote, is there anything James O'Keefe is good at? That's what your board member said. Oh, and by the way, this meeting was video recorded. I'm going to keep saying that. You may want to ask existing board members if they want to share that entire video with you. I suggest you request the entire seven hour or so video to see for yourself what actually happened. You don't have to have been there. You simply need to watch the video and hear all of the testimony. After the six hours, I was asked what I had to say for myself. I was given about 10 seconds to respond. And then I was dismissed. Wow. Then, and I'm reading from board minutes drafted by lawyers who are taking a record of what the board members said and did. A vote was called to strip me of all of my authority and decision-making at this organization for half a year. That's 180 days. Again, it's in the board minutes. You'll have a copy of it. It says, quote, the CEO's ability to make these decisions suspended for 180 days with such power transferred to the executive director. The executive director reports to the board. The CEO is placed on leave for two weeks, and the CEO's access to donors is restricted. So I can't talk to donors. I can't raise money. see. Okay. My first question before I was dismissed, I asked how the remaining team will manage the company and what the plan was. That's something you, you had said, what's the plan? But they didn't provide one. It was clear they didn't actually have one. And then I was dismissed. So I went off the grid as requested. Went hiking with Kennedy in the mountains. Within a few days of going off the grid, I started receiving missed calls and texts from the same board members and officers who demanded I be gone. They informed the staff that they're waiting to hear from me. I found that odd. There was a corporate resolution demanding that I be gone for two weeks. I was a little worried about violating the corporate resolution, <laughs> wouldn't you? This was while I was commanded by a motion of a board to be literally gone on paid leave 
for two weeks. And then an officer at Project Veritas took a screenshot of my red receipts of text messages and distributed them to you saying, quote, you owe your team a response, please allow communication. This was during the time when I was required by the board to be gone. Then, it's going to get stranger. Then, and again, I'm going to give you copies of all this. Then, on February 10th, you guys don't know what I'm about to tell you. Another board meeting occurred. Again, I'm gone. With the meeting's minutes reflecting that they had indefinitely suspended me from the board, by this time they had stripped me of all of my authority as CEO. During the time I was on leave, they kicked me off the board. So I can't be a CEO if I have no authority. I can't make any decisions. I'm not allowed to access any donor names. I wasn't even sure what my job was or if I even had a job. Right now, I actually don't. I'm not sure what my job here is. In the board minutes, it says that I no longer have a paycheck and I'm indefinitely suspended from this organization. Five days later, after that, on February 15th, a statement was put out by this organization, by this organization's executive director, saying, quote, James has not been removed from Project Veritas. Five days after they removed me from Project Veritas. James is the hardest working person I've ever met. Those who know him know he will not take time off unless forced to. Absent from the statement was the actions of the board to remove me from the board and remove me as CEO. I don't know why they omitted that part. Later on the 15th, the same day, while hiking with Kennedy, PV put a statement by quote tweeting a picture of me with him saying, there is nothing better than enjoying a well-deserved vacation. That tweet failed to mention that by then I had been removed from the board and indefinitely suspended as CEO. Why didn't they put that part in? This is where things get really messed up. A few days later, an officer sent an email to the board with bizarre hyperbole and innuendo about certain expenses related to our business needs. These included, and you can't make this up, that Project Veritas paid for James O'Keefe's down payment of his wedding. I got a chuckle out of this. I'm not married. Um, I've never been married. I do hope to get married one day. In fact, I got married to you in Oklahoma, but that was pretend. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Everyone enjoyed it. We rented a charter bus. We all went down. Everyone enjoyed that musical, or at least I thought. I'm not married, but the truth of the expense, the $12,000, was that it was a payment for our annual Project Veritas Christmas party. Remember that? Where you guys were there, some of you brought your spouses? The officer lied by omission, excluding the purpose of paying the $12,000 for the wedding venue. It looked like Project Veritas was reimbursing me for a wedding venue. Why would the officer lie like that? There were also, again, bizarre complaints, and this is where you come in, Asha, about taking too many trips to too many meetings over the course of a year. I think there were like 305 cars I had taken to meetings and donors and journalism assignments, including all the, quote, black cars taken from airports to various meetings. I have a copy of that, so you don't have to take my word for it. The officer stated to the board, this is on February 13th this week, 
that we should do things such as, quote, reschedule meetings. And the IRS would prefer Zoom meetings over in-person meetings. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. My lawyer has got a real laugh out of that one over the last couple of days. And again, I have a copy of these. You can read them for yourselves. The wedding, there's a line item here. It omits the purpose of the expense. It was for a project. You were there. You were dressed in your amazing Christmas clothes. I remember it was beautiful. It was like a Christmas PJ blazer thing you had on. That was that one. You were there. Yeah. It wasn't a wedding. It wasn't a wedding. Thanks for bringing the outfit. I, it was a great outfit. I, I remember, that was what I remember from that. And we sang, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. But it wasn't, a, I didn't get married. It was a Project Veritas Christmas party. Our Christmas party this year cost about twice as much. That one was about 12,000 bucks. Okay. All right, I just got to stop there for a minute. And maybe we'll transition out of the, out of the video because I have some commentary I want to make and a few other things I want to cover. That is bizarre. That is really fucking bizarre. They were so out of touch. He's going to mention it. They're, they, he, they're so out of touch. They thought he was married. This is uh, the night of long knives for uh, James O'Keefe. That board came gunning for him. Could you imagine being there for seven hours? Which, which is really the um, equivalent of like a struggle session where you're being interrogated by people who are trying to get you to admit your complicity, to admit your complicity in crimes against humanity in the state, which is what they do in places like Soviet Russia, Soviet China, or communist China, still do, by the way. Um, and here now in the United States, the struggle sessions are very real. And that's what he went through. He had to defend himself against seven hours worth of accusations, and they're scraping the barrel. Black cars? Well, what color car would have been better? White car. Let's say he's driving a white car. Doesn't that reflect white privilege? They can spin this thing any way they want. Black cars. And it's clear that even with something like a private jet, he's using the jet to maximize his time and make money for Project Veritas. You know, I looked at his chart. He's got a bunch of planets in, in Cancer. Let me just go through the, the lineup of, of uh, the planets. So he's got uh, Sun in Cancer 7, Moon in Cancer 1, Mercury Cancer 3, Venus in Cancer 10. That's a lot of Cancer. And then he has Mars in Scorpio and Saturn in Scorpio. This guy is water. Right, James O'Keefe is emotional. You can tell right here he's emotional. And 
when you have somebody who has so much water in their chart, they are immersed, literally immersed in the thing that they're doing. If you have air in your chart, you can be more objective. You can step back and say, you know, maybe I'm being a bit of an ass or he can't do that. It's not in his wiring. And cancer's crabby, right? It's crabby. And this is a guy that knows the value of momentum to keep the water moving, keep things moving, keep things moving. Pluto and Libra, 29 degrees. He's got a Pluto-Pluto square going on right now. I think that's really the dilemma, the astrological dilemma that he's facing. James O'Keefe is going to be okay. Saturn's moving into Pisces. He's going to start to trine his moon, trine his sun, trine his Mercury, trine his Venus, trine his Mars, trine his Saturn. Sextile is Jupiter. He's got Jupiter and Capricorn retrograde. In the personal planet realm, he'll be fine. Saturn square Uranus. That'll be interesting. That's coming. And then ultimately Saturn, uh, Neptune square by the end of its transit. So we're talking 2026. TBD with that, right? But in the interim, in the now, James O'Keefe is going to be fine. Jupiter's moving into Taurus. It's going to sextile all his cancer planets. Jupiter trine. This guy's going to, he'll be fine. Project Veritas, that's another question altogether. But this is, you know, this is a, a significant event. I'm going to, I'm going to lose the uh, visual. You, you guys kind of see what's going on here. You get the tenor of it. Um, it's a significant event. You know, we're watching you know, the, uh, the crucifixion of somebody who's a truth teller. He's not perfect. You know, he's not perfect in terms of, uh, maybe the, 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 the scope of, you know, his subject matter, but he gets as close as he can personally. I'm sure he can be a dick. Successful people are, can be real dicks. Successful people wind up offending people at times. And this is a guy with a mission. He's got Mars and Scorpio. He's got a mission. Saturn and Scorpio, mission. Mars-Saturn conjunction. Head down, work hard, right? Uh, do as much as you can. Accomplish as much as you can. I mean, again, dude's not perfect. None of us are perfect. But on the face of what he has built over 13 years, it's pretty significant. And I'm sure James O'Keefe, if he wanted to, could have gone into the corporate world and been very successful. People with his skill set, which is translatable, could be very successful. But he felt the need to go in a different direction. He's got this true note in, in uh, Gemini, zero degrees. So he, that's, you know, that's the journalist. That's what he's here to do. He's here to get into that Gemini mode, Chiron in Gemini too, you know, to speak uncomfortable, uncover uncomfortable things. So it's going to be very interesting to see where all of this goes. I, he's going to be fine. 
He's going to be fine. He'll he'll continue to to do what um, he does. Maybe not the same way, but the James O'Keefe story is not over. Project Veritas, however, that's a different story. That's a different story. He put 13 years into it. Next year's the 14th year. That's two Saturn cycles. It's in the opposition. So he's moving into the realm of opposition with where Saturn was originally when it started. So what is he facing? He's facing opposition from within. What I'd love to know, and I haven't really spent the amount of time because I just started to pay attention to this deeply today, is who are the board members? That's the next thing that's going to come up. These people's lives are about to be turned upside down. You go look, look at the comments on that video on, on Tim Pool. Tim Pool posted that. You know, a lot of these people are probably not, uh, you know, the Mercers, you know, of the world. But they donate. They're donor. They're donors to Project Veritas. That's a big deal. And they're saying, I'm not going to donate to them anymore. So the donations will fall off. And then what will happen? They won't be able to afford the staff. Project Veritas is about to collapse before our very eyes, unless, of course, Pfizer rewards them and says, good job, thank you, and gives them a big, fat donation to keep the doors open for a while and try to reboot this thing. But, you know, there is such a thing as loyalty. And I just don't think that anybody is going to pay any attention to what Project Veritas does moving forward just because the name is on it. So they may be able to keep the doors open. Uh, you know, Pfizer may be able to give them 40 pieces of silver, but they're not going to be able to have any kind of credibility from this point moving forward. You know, and some of those people will leave with James. when J If James starts something new, I could easily see that. But if you're those people now who work for Veritas, you're in a real quandary. It gets back to the sun today uh, in Pisces at three degrees, you know, in that awkward conjunction with the court. What do they do? You know, th th there's the new thing hasn't come yet, and they need a paycheck. But then I'm sure that there are a number of people inside of that that group that are very loyal. And have some moral compass. What do they do? So this story has a big ripple effect in a lot of people's lives. And it's, a, um, I think, a fitting story for where we are in our times. So I was actually pretty impressed with James. There were periods where he was like holding back his tears. He'll lose it at some point. You know, he'll 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 um he'll lose his shit. It's okay. You're supposed to lose your shit. You know, life is messy sometimes. We all know that. Okay, I wanted to play something else today, and this is uh, I'm I'm actually going to extend the time a little bit for the show because this is. As much as that was kind of heart-wrenching to watch him go through these things, and and the the falsity and the bearing of false witness, which by the way, it's not in the Ten Commandments, but that is one of the worst things 
a person can ever do is to bear false witness towards another. And that's exactly what that board was doing. So I want to play you something a little more lighthearted, but nonetheless compelling in its own way. Okay, let me see if I can find this thing. Where is it? Here it is. Okay, so Equacentric, Equa, sent me this last night. <laughs> Um, this is a show uh, on PBS, and I think um, Henry Louis Gates is the guy who is the uh, interviewer, and he's interviewing Angela Davis, and they've done like a DNA search on Angela Davis, and the results are quite surprising, to say the least. So let me let me go in. Let me add a little time to the meter here. Because I want to play this, and uh, this will give you this will give you a good laugh. Let me see if I can. Uh, I'll add a few minutes here. There we go. Put some. I'll put some money on the meter. For those of you who are not familiar with Angela Davis, although you should be, because I talked about her last month, both on this show and on Astro Weather. Uh, one, of, one of the uh, bleeding radicals of our time, more than likely responsible uh, for the death of three innocent people in a courtroom shooting in San Rafael, Marin County, California, with the Soledad Three younger brother of George Jackson of the soul death three managed to get a gun that Angela Davis had bought the previous day into the courtroom, commandeer the courtroom. And uh, as a result of that, all three members of the soul death three were shot. I believe the judge was shot. Uh, the brother was shot. And uh, that rifle was directly tied to Angela Davis. And what is she rewarded with? A teaching position, tenure, accolades. So let's um let me play this thing because it is gonna you'll you'll get a good good chuckle out of this. I just have to find the right the right piece here. Let me see. Here we go. All right, so this is where he's starting off. He's gonna set the stage for uh his little get-together with Angela Davis. Hidden in the closest branches of their family trees. For Angela, the mystery centered around her mother, Sally Bell. Sally grew up in a foster home, and Angela came to me hoping to learn the identity of her biological parents. This request prompted a question of my own. Why is it important to you to solve this mystery? Some people don't want to know. Some people do. I would want to know, so the answer seems obvious to me, but not to our audience, so that's why I'm asking. I don't necessarily know whether my sense of myself will change as a result. 
of knowing uh, uh, something more about her origins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, my mother was such a remarkable woman, and I just <laughs> would like to know, uh, you know, where that came ing- from, the ingredients of that. exactly, yeah. exactly. There are no records of Sally's birth. So our only chance at solving this mystery was DNA. And at first, even that proved frustrating. Angela's maternal haplogroup, the genetic signature passed from mother to child, traces back to Africa, indicating that Sally's mother was an African-American woman. But this alone couldn't establish her actual identity. And DNA could tell us nothing further. We had better luck with Sally's father. Our genetic genealogist, Cece Moore, compared Angela's DNA profile to millions of others in publicly available databases and discovered that Angela has a pair of half-first cousins she didn't know she had. And by mapping the family trees of these cousins, Cece realized that they could only be related to Angela through the man who had to be Sally's biological father, a white Alabama lawyer named John Austin Darden. Well, is my mother's lips? Hmm. That is your biological grandfather. Mm. You're looking at your mm. mother's father. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's so funny. I can see her in it. Mm. <laughs> Would you please turn the page? Yep. You see? Didn't I say that? There you go. We wanted to put them in profile. No. No. What's no. it like to see your mother and her father like that side by side? Well, I can't get used to the fact that this is her father, but mm. uh, I mean, my yes. I know it. Yes. Uh, but uh, he's white. But I, yes, it's it's really amazing. Once we looked at those profiles, we said, yeah. "You didn't need a DNA test." That's true. <laughs> the barbershop would have convicted the brother. Wow. <laughs> right there. Wow. She wow. looked like her daddy. Do you think your mother would have liked to meet? her cousins or her relatives? Yes. Yes. My mother was so open and so gracious and um, so uh, always uh, willing to look for the good in people. Right. Since we can't yet identify Sally's mother, we can't determine how she met John Austin Darden or do anything more than guess as to the nature of their relationship. But our researchers were able to uncover a great deal about John himself. A veteran lawyer and Alabama legislator, John Austin Darden, 63, died unexpectedly here Sunday. The former publisher of the Goodwater Enterprise, who served both as a representative and senator at various times, had practiced law here 40 years. Other than his widow, he is survived by four sons and two daughters. Well, I didn't think that we would ever um, have a name. Mm. Mm. I I always imagined 
imagined him as uh, an anonymous figure. He was a prominent member of his community, quite accomplished, very well educated, hmm. very wealthy. Uh, well, was he a member of the Ku Klux Klan oh. <laughs> or the White Citizens Council? That's something I would also want to know. Yeah, to find out. Because in those days, in order to achieve that power, right. one had to um, thoroughly embrace white supremacy. It would not be a surprise if those things were true. Yeah. But we just don't know. We don't know anything about it. Hmm. Can I ask you what you're feeling right now? I guess I'm both glad, but I'm also really angry. Of course. I'm really, really angry. Mm -hmm. uh, and I see that this um, notice in the Birmingham News says that he survived by four sons and two daughters. Right. Uh, but, you know, what about my mother may not have been the only one. Right. Uh, she may have siblings uh, mm -hmm. who are half black. Mm -hmm. uh, so this actually, it, it, it opens up so many other questions. Oh, you bet it does. Right. But of course, that's true about knowledge, isn't it? That, it is. You know, the more you learn, the more you realize that, that there is to learn. And there's more to learn. As it turns out, Angela's knowledge of her newfound Darden family was about to expand dramatically. Oh, yes, it will be. Expanding we dramatically. We were able to follow the paper trail from John back to Angela's fourth great-grandfather a man named Stephen Darden. Stephen was born in Colonial Virginia sometime around the year 1750. And in the National Archives, we discovered that he did something remarkable. Muster roll of Captain Abraham Kirkpatrick's company, 4th Virginia Regiment of Foot, in the service of the United States for the month of November 1779. Drum and pipes, Stephen Darden. Okay, he was a musician. You're, you, Angela Davis, are descended from a patriot. <laughs> I love this. Okay, she's descended from a patriot from the Revolutionary War. Okay, some guy who theoretically fought for the country so that it could be free. And she's a descendant. She has patriotic blood in her. Uh, it's going to get better here in a second. But this is the first of the a cognitively dissonant moment that she's going to have to digest. By the way, she is an Aquarian. And these are kind of Aquarian, Uranian, shocking revelations. And it's about to, it's about to rock her world here in a second. Your fourth great-grandfather served in the Revolutionary War. And as you can see on the muster roll in front of you, he played the drums. Yes. So when you were studying the American Revolution, did it ever occur to you that you could have an ancestor? Yeah, absolutely Ooh. not. <laughs> so absolutely not. What do you do with that information now that you know that you do, that you are descended from someone who did in fact serve in the American Revolution? Um, well, the American Revolution. She's fucking perplexed. She's perplexed. And should have gone further than it actually did. Without a doubt. You know, but I'm glad to be able to have this information. Uh, oh, right. Uh, because, and, and, you know, one of the reasons, um, uh, and I'm thinking off the top of my head right now. Of course. Right? You only just um, threw all of this information at me. <laughs> we are improvising together. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm remembering that 
so many people have called those of us who fight, who try to fight against racism and, 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 and who have visions of a more radical democracy yeah, as un-American. Yes. And, you know, I've, you know, always insisted that uh, uh, the, the, the best way to pay tribute to this country is to try to change it and, 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 and allow it to develop into the, the kind of um, a, a place where, you know, anyone can be free and equal and happy. Uh, I'm with you. So, so there's a sense in which I identify uh, with uh, the, the identity of the patriot, but, but it has to be a radical of course. Uh, identification. The, the most American thing you can do is to fight against injustice. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It gets better. Fortunately, Angela's ability to identify with her ancestor would soon diminish considerably. Records show that after the Revolutionary War, Stephen Darden moved from Virginia to Georgia, where, at the time of his death, he owned a farm and at least six enslaved people, a fact that took Angela by surprise. I always imagine my ancestors as the people who were enslaved. Uh, oh, you got a little bit of a surprise there. I right, so this is a this is, brings up an interesting dilemma, which I'm going to address as soon as she tries to sort this out. Right. And um, my mind and my heart are swirling with all of these contradictory em emotions. Uh, you know, I'm glad on the one hand that we've we've begun to solve this mystery. Mm -hmm. You know, we have something that we didn't have before. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think it makes me even more committed to um, struggling for a better world. Of course. Because this world that uh, could give rise to uh, such a beautiful person as my mother yeah. was, was not the world I want to see in the future. Of course not. What would your mom have made of this? She would have probably said, well, it's good to know uh, my genetic background. It's uh -huh. good to know my ancestry. Um, but those are not necessarily my people. Of course. My people, you know, are the ones who um, fought for me, who right. supported me. Uh, who nurtured and loved me and exactly, nourished me. Exactly, exactly. Right? Okay, so he's going to get into this other guy, Jay Johnson. But I think that's really funny that this dyed-in-the-wool commie mommy, Angela Davis, who has been rewarded for the entirety of her life and time on this planet with the perks of being a, a radical, of being somebody who is overtly feminist, you know, LGBTQAI+, communist, went to went to commun went to communist schools in both Russia and East Germany skated basically on an accessory to murder charge wound up getting tenured positions in universities accolades awards books published 
on the cover of Time magazine. This is a woman who's been richly rewarded by the uh, radical, radical communist left who are deeply pervasive in our, our culture, in our society. It happened for a long time. They promoted her every step of the way. She's been richly rewarded for staying in her lane. And now she finds out that she's not only the descendant of somebody who fought in the Revolutionary War, a patriot, but somebody who owns slaves. She's descended from a slave owner. And you can spin that any way you want. You can uh, reframe it and say, well, this is a reminder to fight the good fight and, um, and, and resolve the paradox because this is not the, the world that my mother represented to me. And, you know, these are my people. No, well, it's in your bloodline. It's in your bloodline. And there's a number of different questions that arise out of that. Number one, technically speaking, her ancestors owned slaves. So if, if we're going into the reparation world, where is Angela Davis on that? Does she have to kick out for reparations? Probably not. She gets a, she gets a pass. She gets a hall pass. But it's a worthwhile uh, discussion to to throw out there. Very worthwhile discussion to throw out there. The other thing that to me um, could be brought into the discussion. Somebody like Angela Davis has tunnel vision, right? There's only one way. Right there, there's that you know, progress, change, progress, change, progress, change. Radical, revolutionary, right? A world that's more just, more you know, it's all that you know, kind of utopianistic, communistic bullshit, because it never gets there. Never gets there. This place is not meant to be utopia. Maybe when Jesus comes back, we have the thousand years of peace, or you know, maybe, maybe that's when we approach it. If that's indeed the case, but this world is meant to be imperfect. But, you know, in her mind, fueled by that idea, that Aquarian idea, that, that this is how life should be here, being rewarded for that by the people who want to make sure that she's an icon and can entrain as many people as possible along the way. That's important, too. She can't deviate from her belief. There's no self-reflection. There's no introspection. There's no real asking herself very important questions about that system. And so without that, without that kind of self-reflection and her commitment to that system, anybody outside of that, she wants to loop in. But anyway possible, and one could make a case, and I'm just going to throw this out there, that Angela Davis is an ideological slave owner. Ideological. Because when you get into that relationship, it is a fixed relationship, right? 
there's no deviation. There's a hierarchy, but it's fixed. And so when you dive into that, that, that kind of, you know, socialist progressive slash communistic world, it's a very fixed perspective. There's no deviation. There's no room for discussing ideas. The individual ceases to exist. You become a slave, an ideological slave. And just as slaves were taken out to the to the woodshed and beaten into submission, you have what James Lindsay went through, like a struggle session. That's what those are about. They'll take you out to the woodshed and they'll beat you into submission so that you become a part of this ideological plantation. Now, the same can exist in capitalism. Sure, it can. But this is, a, we're talking about Angela Davis. And the idea that, and she would blanch at this idea because she's convinced that she's fighting the right and just war and that ultimately it results in some kind of Aquarian utopian dream where everybody's fair and equal and all, all the resources are distributed equally and nobody has to go without you know, any kind of food or, or um, life's um, necessities. What kind of people emerge out of that? So the struggle isn't about the individual. It's not about the individual overcoming obstacles in their life. The struggle is about completely changing the system. And even when they get to their supposed destination, it'll change again. That's the model. That is always the model. It's not, it, it's driven by a static ideology, but the method or the process itself is ongoing. It never stops. You never arrive anywhere because to arrive at something would mean that you would have what happened in Russia, right? You would have change, but it would be the kind of change that that we would consider change. You, know, you have Stalin ramping up Russia technologically, manufacturing, industrial, and, and a lot of people, you know, who were staunch, died in the wool, Bolsheviks and communists, they break from Stalin. You know, there's a whole thing with Stalinism, right? And he gets to this point, and then that changes, and then you have. Um, you know, uh, Brezhnev, right? And, you know, and all these characters and, uh, you know, and they change and the whole thing, because you once you get to a certain point, two to three generations downstream, three generations downstream, the effects of the thing that, uh, the results of the thing that got changed are very different. Three generations down downstream from uh, 1913, in uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, the people are very different. They have very different ideological buy-ins. It's not the same, right? So you have to keep changing. You always have to reinvent uh, the struggle in order for the ideology to continue to be alive. This is the, this is the big problem with all with that with that system. I just think it was rich. Rich that Angela Davis found out that 
ultimately she's descended from slave owners. A little bit of irony there for you today. Thank you, Ekra, for sending that to me last night. All right, I'm out of here. A little bit longer today, but um, I had to bring in something a little bit lighter and darkly ironic after uh, James O'Keefe, a story we're, uh, that we'll be following and uh, see where this song goes. He's going to be fine. Astrologically, he's going to be fine. He'll have some challenges about three years from now, but he'll be fine. In fact, he'll be stronger and better than ever. He's got that Mars-Saturn conjunction in Scorpio. Look out. All right. Use your head in order to discern what's real. Your heart to set what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Thank you all for being here. Take good care. Have a wonderful day. Bye for now.